Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, this week we are confronted with John the Baptist's opening word, repent, change your life. And how we hear this word, repent, depends a lot on how our life is going. Sometimes the call to a changed life feels like an unwelcome intrusion. At other times, the call to a changed life can feel like a blessed invitation. It really depends on how our life is going, doesn't it? When I was uh, a new parent, I was fortunate enough to have a beautiful girl who was blessed with the gift of never sleeping. And so it took about a month before the the sort of Christmas everyday feeling wore off and began to be replaced by exhaustion, irritation, and eventually replaced with frustration and then anger, right? Now, this was not during the day, but this was just during the, the dark hours when we would try to convince our daughter to sleep. And um, as the months progressed, I became more and more angry. Emma, I love you. I'm just, I'm just telling the truth. It was really difficult for me. And about nine months into our parenting journey, um, I remember just, you know, we, it was probably the fifth time I'd tried to put Emma back to sleep and it was 11 or 12 at night. And I came storming out of her room, which had been happening every day. And my wife looked at me and she said, who are you? And I said back to her, I don't know. Now, in that moment, I was aware that my life needed to change. The poor are those who have nowhere else to turn but to God. The poor are those who have nowhere else to turn but to God. In that moment, I was, as Jesus insisted in the Sermon on the Mount, among the poor in spirit. Now, the issue, the question of a changed life is not a laughing matter. These are challenging times, are they not? Many people are unwell or struggling. It is reported that teens today have a massively increased uh, chance of wrestling with anxiety and depression. There is great fear and uncertainty and anger under the surface everywhere. Do you feel it? Do you encounter it? So I'm just curious, how do you feel today about this invitation to a changed life? My second question then would be, if we're invited to a changed life, is change possible? 
And if it's possible, how is it possible? I can't help but think at this moment about the uh, impending binge of New Year's resolutions. What's your experience with that? My experience tells me that change rooted in self-will isn't super effective. Sometimes it helps or it happens. And here is where I think our text from Isaiah that we heard this morning is really helpful. And as a quick bit of context, um, Isaiah chapter 11, which we heard this morning, is a messianic text, which means it is a text about the one that God has promised who will usher in new creation. So in Isaiah chapter 11, it states simply, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. How do you hear that? Does that seem like ridiculous? Who would delight in the fear of the Lord? Do you hear it that way? I think I'm tempted to hear it that way. Many of us over the course of our years have been taught to be afraid of God. And this fear is primarily rooted in what we call judgment. In much of our evangelical tradition, God has been portrayed as an angry and capricious, meaning unpredictable, judge, who would happily watch humans burn for eternity in hell, and who might also relent if we say the secret password. Is that the kind of God that you have been taught to fear? For many of us, like it or not, we have been taught to flee coming wrath. And I will say it's tragic when we learn to live in fear of God. Eugene Peterson, in his beautiful book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, insists that the term fear of the Lord is an essential thing for us to get right if we are to live well. And so I want to take just a moment and let you hear from Eugene's own words what he has to say about fear of the Lord. So hear this. Fear of the Lord is made up of four words in English, two in Hebrew. And the four words are bound together, making a single word. Its function as a single word cannot be understood by taking it apart and then adding up the meanings of the parts. Fear of the Lord, all one word, fear of the Lord, is not a combination of fear plus of plus the plus Lord. Fear of the Lord is a word all its own. So we don't. We don't look up fear in the dictionary and then God and then proceed to combine the, the, the two meanings. Fear, a feeling of apprehension, plus God, a divine being worthy of worship, is not fear of the Lord. So he, he says this as well. So he asks the question that I think we are also trying to ask. He says, how do we go about living appropriately in this world that has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ? What a great question. How do we go about living appropriately in this world that has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ? 
This is a question that needs to be delayed as long as possible. Most of the Christian life involves paying attention to who God is and what he does. But not only the who and the what, but the how, the means that God employs to accomplish his ends. If we get too interested too soon in what we do and are, we go off the rails badly. Still, we are a part of it, and we need a term to designate the human side of spirituality. So this is what we're talking about. Fear of the Lord is a term that helps us to designate the human side of spirituality, something that names the way we make our way through this complex minefield of a world in which we live out the Christian life. It needs to be a term that does not make us the center of the subject. So we could talk a lot. I could read a lot more because it's a great book. I won't. But the main point is that fear of the Lord, and I think you can hear it in Eugene's language, is not a, a term that involves cowering. It doesn't involve fear. It does involve reverence and responsiveness and awe and silence. It's a very beautiful term, fear of the Lord. And so here's the thing that I want to note. The fruit of repentance is not the same as the fruit of fear. And you remember how John, uh, you know, calling the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were coming to the Jordan, he called them, what, a brood of vipers? We could talk about that in a minute. Um, and about fleeing the wrath to come. And then he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And I just think it's so important for us to realize the fruit of repentance is not the same as the fruit of fear. Terror can never produce good fruit. So if you happen to be one who lives in terror of God, I am deeply sorry. And there are many among us who have learned to live afraid of God. Fortunately, that is not the end of the story. Those who have been taught to be afraid and yet press on into God are those who can become deeply healing presences in our world. Because God, the God we will find if we press in, is in actuality all good and all loving. And so you might ask, doesn't John, though, seem to paint a picture of God that reinforces fear? Remember, he did call them the brood of vipers, and they told them to flee from the wrath to come. So is John wanting us to be afraid? And for the sake of time, I'm going to say this really briefly and without a lot of explanation. But I think John's comments to the Jewish religious leaders foreshadow the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So John and Jesus were cousins. They knew each other well. Jesus himself wept over Jerusalem because he foresaw its destruction. And that destruction was coming because of the, the willingness of the religious leaders to get into bed with Rome. Think about the crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus happened because of that unholy alliance. So he's not 
telling them to flee from burning in hell. He's, he's saying that the path that you are on is going to lead to destruction, the destruction of Jerusalem. But the imagery we get from John about judgment can feel fiery. There's no doubt about it. And how we hear it depends entirely on the image of God that we carry into the hearing. So let me read. I just want you to hear again what John says. All right. So these were John's words to the Pharisees. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So I'm suggesting that the image of God that you carry when you hear that text determines everything about how you hear it. So the question is, are some people wheat and some chaff? Is there another way to hear this? What if wheat represents people? What if wheat represents all people? Chaff then would represent all that is false or corrupt. The threshing is the process of removing all that is of no value, but all that is precious is gathered and safe. Hear the way that Eugene Peterson translates that same text. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. The real action comes next. The main character in this drama and Compared to him, I'm a mere stagehand, will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false he'll put out with the trash to be burned. Did you hear that differently the second time? So what we're wrestling with is this, our ideas of judgment, right? And I would just want to suggest to you that God's judgment is a very good thing. Parents know this, right? When they're, you know, keeping their children out of the street or telling their children not to deal in drugs or whatever. They're doing it because they they have perspective and love and care. And I think God's judgment is a lot like that, but God is perfect and all good and all loving. And so divine judgment is like divine critique of our lives. And we need our lives to be critiqued. Now, Isaiah can help us here. I don't know if you start feeling like fidgety when we, when we start talking about judgment, but I think Isaiah helps. So remember in Isaiah 11, it's a messianic text, and it's about the good world that God will bring about through his Messiah. 
And so what does it say about that future? Well, do you remember the part about all the animals? Anybody remember that? Talks about how the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lion with the calf, the leopard, the bear, like the children and the vipers. So in that imagery, we have um, this startling thing about the features that the beasts won't be beastly. Did you notice that? Right. So the things that we call beasts in our world now, the wolves and the lions, the leopards, the bears, the vipers, in this good future, they, they were still themselves, but they weren't beastly. Isaiah indicates a transformation of these creatures, purging them of all that is beastly, of all that harms and destroys, while preserving them as unique creatures that God has made. We do not yet know these creatures as they will be. We do not yet know ourselves as we will be. So when we think about that image and we hold it together with the image of fire, which John gives us, think about the fire as representing the life of God. And it's experienced in different ways, depending on what it encounters. All that is good, all that is of God, all that is as it should be, the fire warms and nurtures. And all that is evil, all that is beastly, all that is false, that harms and destroys, this will be consumed by the fire. We do not yet know ourselves as we will be. But the invitation stands open to each of us. The kingdom of God is among us. This is the radical availability of the kingdom that has appeared in Jesus. The process of our transformation into creatures whose lives are congruent with God's good future can begin now, today. Our texts from this morning have forced us to consider how we understand God's judgment. And yet our theme for this Sunday is peace. How do we hold these two things? Do they, do they relate to one another? I would suggest to you that God's judgment is the corrective that makes peace possible. There can be no peace where there is falsehood and evil and harm and destruction. I think the question that these texts leave us with is, are we willing to change? How do you hear John's invitation to you today? Repent, change your life, for the kingdom is at hand. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.